Hosea this morning, chapter 7. Um, I'm hoping to progress a little more quickly as there is a lot of... It's easy to fall into the slump of always talking about the central theme of the book, uh, which we're going to talk about again today. It's inevitable because here it is. This is the Word of God that we're in. Uh, but I think we could probably move a little bit more quickly. So we're going to try and take the entirety of chapter 7 this morning. Um, we'll see how that goes, how long we end up running. But um, there you have it. So uh, in Hosea chapter 7, we have this description uh, where God is talking and, and in many respects discussing the training that he is giving his people. And I want to talk about that this morning by way of application for us as believers. So let's read uh, the first few verses in Hosea chapter 7. He says, when I would have healed Israel, in verse 1, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered and the wickedness of Samaria, for they commit falsehood and the thief comes in and this troop of robbers spoils without. And they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness, and now their own doings have beset them about there before my face. So we have this first this expression of God's desire. He says, I would have healed Israel over and over and over through their history. God has dealt with this kingdom of his, not only his king, that that not only the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, but with all of his people, the nation of Israel, both kingdoms united. And over and over, he would have healed them. He would have restored them. He would have uh, dealt with their sin and brought them back into relationship with him. And over and over, they refused. And that's where we encounter them at this morning, God's expressing of this desire. He says, Ephraim and Samaria. And he, and he references those two things first off, because Ephraim is symbolic of the kingdom of Israel, that northern kingdom. That's where uh, Jeroboam the first is from. That's why it's the it's the royal tribe, as it were. And Samaria is where the royal city. That's where they've housed uh, their the the center the, the capital of their kingdom. And we, if you want to put in your notes, First Kings chapter sixteen, verse twenty four. That's where one of the kings of Israel built Samaria, and that's where they moved their capital to. So he's calling the leaders of this place, the the royal tribe and the royal city, the leaders of Israel to account. They've led the people to embrace a lie. And we've talked about that uh, extensively, how the kingdom of Israel was founded on idolatry. And that was the mechanism to keep those in control. But God had desired to heal the relationship that he had with Israel, keeping that marriage relationship that he introduces uh, Israel with. Uh, through Hosea and Gomer and that adulterous relationship that, they, that she had with him, here that being represented. And so he desired to heal that relationship. But the heart of the people is far from God. Let, let's look in Hosea chapter 4 for just a moment. Hosea chapter 4, turn back a few pages uh, in verse 17. He says, Ephraim is joined to idols. That, that, is, where, that, that is what he's embraced. That's what he has surrounded himself with. That is where he is. His conviction lies. He's bound to idols. And in chapter 8, verse 9, it says, For they are gone up to Assyria, and a while last alone by himself. Ethereum has hired lovers. They've sought security and rest and peace in every place except for with God, 
who has done all that he can do to call them back to himself. The heart of the people is far from him, but the heart of God remains desirous of reconciliation. All the way forward, we look at the nation of Israel, even after they've come back from captivity, even after thousands of years transpire, we encounter them in Jesus's day. And there's this separation that remains where they have pursued other mechanisms, other religion, as it were, pursuit, teaching for, for the traditions of men and desiring those above what God has commanded. In Luke chapter 30, 13, if you want to turn there with me, Luke 13, verse 34. Luke 13, 34, we encounter Jesus. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen does gather her brood under her wings, and you would not. Here Jesus laments and grieves over the desire that he as God has to reconcile Israel to himself, yet over and over, those that have been sent as his messengers have been killed. Those are, they've been put to death for the unpopular message confronting them with their sin, their idolatry, and their need to repent and turn their heart to God. And I'll tell you that by way, uh, that if God desires to deal with us with his people, that we as his people today should experience this same desire with us. That there are those things that God will put into our life, the word of God, and we're going to explore this this morning, the word of God, others in fellowship, whatever it may be, those are the, the that he sends our way. And our response is either one that is similar to that of Israel, where we kill and we put those to death who he has sent, we're unacknowledging and willing to ignore it, or we're receptive to what God is doing and the calling that he's put upon our life to be reconciled to him. He continues on in verses 2 and 3. says, They consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about. They are before my face. They make the king glad with their wickedness and the princes with their lies. So here, not only are the, the, peop, the, the, the leaders are called to account, but we find that the people are embracing of the same things. That as we read earlier, as the priests go, as the leaders go, so go the people. And they've fallen into idolatry. And it isn't just the leaders that are at fault here because the other, these people, as we've talked about in the past, they knew full well what they were doing. They knew full well what God had revealed to them, and they chose to pursue idols and find comfort and seek peace elsewhere. Ultimately, this idolatry that they found themselves in lulls them into a false sense of security. Right, we talked about it briefly this morning as we were studying through and we looked at these characteristics, the attributes of God, and the, these, these little things that he does that would help us understand who he is. And as he reveals those things, his omniscience, that he knows everything, that he sees everything, and his omnipresence, that he's everywhere. And I made the comment sort of offhand, but here we are, we, we look over our shoulder both directions before we take the cookie that we're not supposed to take. 
and we think we've gotten away with it. Not acknowledging and, and, and not understanding that God himself is there, that he knows. And here's the nation of Israel, and they have separated themselves from God to the extent that they feel as if they're getting away with it. And then not only that we're getting away with it, but the things that we're doing in lieu of worship of the true and living God, in worship of these false gods, would somehow bring about security and restoration and salvation. They're willingly ignorant. They consider not, he says, that they, in their hearts, that I remember, that I know all of their wickedness. They make the king glad with their wickedness and the princes with their lies. In Isaiah chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me. Now, Isaiah is written to uh, the, the kingdom of Judah, but it's still representative of the hearts of the people here. Isaiah chapter 1, I want to look at verses 2 through 4. He says, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. This is where the kingdom of Israel stands in their relationship with God. They have rebelled against him. And he says, the ox knows his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people does not consider that here is God who has provided everything. And even a dumb animal like an ox or a donkey knows who's feeding them, who is taking care of them, who is providing for their every need and necessity. Yet here is Israel that is choosing to ignore the very fact. As we read in uh, the book of Hosea, he says, listen, I've given you corn, I've given you all these things, and you take the provision that I give you and you offer it unto Baal. You offer it unto these false gods. So I'm going to remove those things from you. O oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, they are gone away backwards. In Psalm chapter 2, Psalm chapter 2, we read really a commentary in the heart of man, but in many respects, this is very applicable to the nation, the kingdom of Israel here. He says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves together and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break the bands asunder and let us cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. In other words, we're going to forget the God who is this, who's created everything, who has spoken it all into existence, who is sovereign over his creation, who is holy, righteous, and just. We're going to put off these bands, these things that God has given us as mechanisms of protection, and we're going to do our own thing. He says the Lord will have them in derision. We may conspire, Jeroboam may have conspired, and every king after him in the nation of Israel, in the kingdom of Israel, may have conspired to control and use religion as a mechanism of control against the people, but ultimately the Lord will have them in derision. He is sovereign and he is in charge. Now this is all a symptom of the heart of the people. In Romans chapter 1, we find this heart still exists today and always has since the beginning of time and always will till the end of time. But in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, it says, Who knowing the judgment of God, because God has revealed this to us, he under, we understand that there is 
something coming, that we are accountable for the sins, for the life that we lead one way, shape, or another. And so what, what we do is we remove God from the equation in an effort to somehow assimilate ourselves into the world that we find and say, I am not responsible for the sin that I've committed. Whether it's evolution and, and removing God from the picture somehow that way, we talked about it this morning in Sunday school, that every evolutionist at its basis level has to be a theistic evolutionist because they're just kicking the can down the road. Something couldn't come from nothing. It had to come from somewhere. We know where it came from because we read it in Genesis chapter 1. God, in the beginning, spoke everything into existence. But they remove God from the picture because if God doesn't exist, then I am no longer responsible for the way that I live. I'm just like any of the animals. I'm not culpable. There's no jurisdiction over me for the way that I behave or conduct myself. And we all know this, and that's why people do that. And he says, who knowing the judgment of God, speaking of those who would choose to reject him, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. That their natural estate, that their, their predetermined destiny apart from Christ is hell. Not only do they not only do the same, but they have pleasure in them that do them. That they get along very nicely with those who would reject God, who would pursue and, and, and indulge in their lusts. We find that's exactly what's happening here in Israel, right? The, the king and the princes, they're all rejoicing, and they're pretty happy about all of the wickedness that's going on in the nation of Israel. The God that we serve is not like this. He's not like any of these others that have been, that have been put up. They have no power. But the true and the living God has all power. He is om, omnipotent. He sees even the heart, even what is within us, clearly. And this is what they've forgotten, and they've wrongly assumed they're getting away with it. As we progress through this chapter, God uses some similes to describe the people. Now, a simile is a figure of speech comparing two things that are unlike, uh, that is often introduced by like or as. Crazy like a fox. It's a simile. And God uses some similes to give us some illustration here to teach us about the heart of Israel and to aid us in self-examination in training of ourselves and understanding where our heart may lie. So let's look at some of these similes. Uh, <clears throat> he says in verse 4, they're all adulterers as an oven. There's the first simile. As an oven heated by the baker who ceases from raising after he has kneaded the dough until it be leavened. In the day of our king, the princes have made him sick with bottles of wine. He stretched out his hand with scorners. Verse 6, for they have made ready their heart like an oven, while as they lie in wait, their, their baker sleeps all the night. In the morning, it burns as a flaming fire. Verse 7, they are all as hot as an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen. There is none among them that calls unto me. So here we have this description, and, and, and there's really almost two similes here in one. 
We have the oven, which is clear, and that's throughout that passage, verses 4 through 7. We also have this baker. And I think that they represent two separate things. But ultimately, the, the point is this, that everything is set in motion. The baker is prepared. He's got the oven going. He's got the fire heated. He's put in the fire, and he's made the dough, and he's done everything that is necessary. Everything is put in motion, and then it's left to rise. The bread is left to rise. Everything's left in morning in 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 everything's put in motion and then it's left to corrupt itself. Now we have the leaders who are responsible for setting everything in motion. They they've created this system of idolatry. The entire government's surrounded by that. That's their mechanism for staying in power, for keeping the people under their control. And the people have been corrupted by that. They've been affected by it. In Galatians chapter 5, turn there with me for a moment. Galatians chapter 5. This is an illustration in many respects that is uh, picked up on in the New Testament. And it's, in, and it's picked up on in the New Testament in regard to our holiness, as it were, our pursuit of walking in obedience to the Lord or not. And in Galatians chapter 5, Galatians is all about falling back into this bondage of keeping the law as a mechanism of being righteous. It's all about legalism. It's all about being uh, somebody who's doing things to be right with God, as opposed to operating in faith. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, he says, You did run well, for you started off pretty good. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion comes not of him that calls you. This persuade, This is not something that we've learned of Christ. This isn't something that he would put on us. This is, it's a godless philosophy, in other words. And he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little leaven goes in and it corrupts everything that it's surrounded by. And in the same respect, here is this baker who's gotten everything going. He started the stove. He's got the dough all needed. He puts the leaven in and then he goes and lies down while the leaven does its thing and it just puffs up and it corrupts the entire thing. And this was a very effective tactic. It was extremely successful. And I want you to think about what's happening in our world today, because this is exactly the mechanisms that are being employed today. That we would continually say, these things are wrong, these things are wrong, these things are wrong, even though those are things that God would say are good. Even though we would say that this is, God would call this sin and the world begins to call this right. We say it long enough and loud enough, and people start to believe that. This little bit of leaven comes in, and it corrupts the entirety of it. So much so that it's in, infiltrated the church, and all of a sudden, we're pulling back from the truth of God's Word, and we're not standing firm any longer. Here is Israel, and it says in verse 6, For they have made ready their heart like an oven, whilst they lie in wait. Their baker sleeps all the night. In the morning, it burns as a flaming fire. Their hearts are given over to this. They're, they're fully engaged in this. That word, that term, made ready, it simply means to be brought near. So here it is. They're embracing of the sin that they're in. They've embraced all of this. They've taken the lie that, that was central in the founding of the kingdom of Israel and has become natural and normal for them, rather than standing firm on the truth 
that God had established, that he had revealed. That's very familiar territory for those of us who would stand firm upon the word of God. Because here in America, that's exactly what's happening. They didn't have to corrupt everything. They just had to take a few small areas, and that will infiltrate everything. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In Micah chapter 2, Micah chapter 2, we find uh, where their heart lies. We find where Israel is. Micah chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in their power, it is in the power of their hand. In other words, we're committing sin. We're doing those things that we know are wrong. Why? Because we can. Because we feel like we're getting away with it. We're not responsible for it. There is no consequence that will come upon me. In Proverbs chapter 4, Proverbs chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. Enter enter not into the path of the wicked and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass by it, turn from it, and pass away. For they sleep not, except they have done mischief. And then their sleep is taken away, unless they cause some to fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the just is as a shining light. And that shines more and more into the perfect day. So here we have this pursuit of wickedness, the pursuit of those things that are contrary to God, and it's never satisfied. It is always something they have to pursue. They can't even rest until they've engaged in sin and indulged the lust of their flesh. And we are warned as God's people to steer away from that path. Here's the nation of Israel, and they think they're getting away with it. They're lulled into this false sense of security. We read it, we'd encounter it this way in the New Testament in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, uh, excuse me, 16. Romans 6, 16. He tells you and I, through the Apostle Paul, know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether it is to sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. When we give ourselves over, when we pursue that, when we indulge that, we become slaves to it. This little bit of leaven has corrupted the entirety of the kingdom. All they had to do was attack religion. All they had to do was remove the proper and true worship, prescribed worship of God, and say, we're going to worship these two idols over here and over here. And the next thing you know, we have this nation that is corrupted. Their heart is far from God. They are separated from Him. And not only that, but they're so far gone that we are going to kill everyone that God sends that might call us to repentance. They didn't have to corrupt everything. Just one thing is all it took. Why is it so important for you and I as believers to stand firm? Because it takes one thing corrupted to begin to turn the tide. It takes one thing corrupted to begin to turn the tide. That we as God's people have to stand firm because there is nothing we can afford to lose, if I can phrase it that way. We're going to come back to that here in a moment. The next simile that we encounter here in our chapter is in verses 8 through 10. He says, Ephraim has mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake, not turned. 
Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knows it not. Yea, gray hairs are upon, are here and there upon him, yet he knows not. And the pride of Israel testifies to his face. They do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. So we have this cake, this, this bread in a pan that's unturned, and it looks good on the top. Right? I mean, it's cooked nice. It's, there it is, but when you flip it over, it's burned. It's burned. It's two-faced. It's hypocritical. It says one thing, but on the other side, it's something completely different. The desire is to look good. The desire is to be acceptable, but the heart is corrupt. In 1 Kings chapter 18, 1 Kings chapter 18, if you'll turn there with me, we're going to read verse 21. First Kings 18, 21. And Elijah came unto all the people. Now this is, here in this passage, we have uh, Elijah, and he's calling, he says, Ahab, get, get your guys together. Get the prophets of Baal together. This is where he, he calls them out, as it were. And the reason he does is the verse that we're reading now, he says, Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? Right? You're two-faced. Your heart is divided. You have one foot in this camp where, where God is God, and another foot in this camp where Baal is God. And this is what he says. If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. They wouldn't make a decision. They were willing and they were comfortable to split their allegiance between a false God and the true and living God and worship both. To break the command of one God to not have any other gods before him or equal with him or on any level considered. Their heart was divided. In Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 6 verse 24 Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. No man can serve two masters. For he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, this is just one example, but there's, we, we can't have a divided heart. We can't serve Baal and serve the true and living God. It doesn't work that way. You have to make a choice. We talked about, as we were studying through the attributes of God this morning in Sunday school, God is not neutral. But he's not neutral. It isn't that God uh, has started everything and then he just set back and, and there really is no consequence. No, he, he is, he, he's got a side and it's his side. And his side is holy and right and just. And we don't get to question that he has made the rules because he is sovereign. And so what happens? God judges sin. He's established the standard because he is not neutral. And he's told the nation of Israel, thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shouldn't make any graven images. Yet here they are doing exactly that and worshiping the same. And God had told them, when you do that, this is what will happen. And he's not neutral. It is wrong for them to do that. And it is right for him to punish it. And when we elevate things in our lives, when our heart is 
like this unturned cake where on the outside we look good and we have this facade where everybody can see and it's acceptable, but on the other side of us, it's burnt and black and undesirable. Our heart is far from him. It's divided and we're trying to serve this other thing, whether it's ourself, whether it's the lust of our flesh, whether it's vain pursuit and God all at the same time. We understand that in Christ, that our only and our chief and our sole pursuit should be him and his glory. They are an unturned cake. Not only that, but they've been this way for so long that they've begun to believe their own facade. That here is the front that I put out there, and they've begun to believe their own lie. In verse 9, strangers have devoured his strength, speaking about the uh, Ephraim, and he knows it not. He doesn't realize the position that he's found himself in. And then he goes on and it says, listen, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knows not. Gray hairs are here and there. Now, listen, I've got some gray and I understand that. And I'm fully aware of it. I wear it as an honor because God says that's what it is, that gray hairs are an honor to old men. doesn't mention women because they don't go gray. They sort of stop at about 39, 30. They just perpetually right that's <laughs> no i've told jessica i said listen don't dye your hair just go gray it's beautiful it's honor i and she is beautiful and it is an honor but there it is the, the point is this they don't even realize the gray that's there they don't have friends that are pointing it out to them they don't have anybody confronting them with their sinfulness not only that but when they look into the mirror they're unwilling to acknowledge it and that illustration of looking in that mirror should sound somewhat familiar to us because we encounter that in James chapter 1. Remember that in James chapter 1? Whosoever looks into the perfect law of liberty, we're, we're looking into the word of God. And what do we behold there? We behold our natural face, all the gray and everything that's there. And we have a choice to make at that point. We can either acknowledge the gray that's there, then I'll just tell you that gray that we find in this illustration those are those things that we've compromised in. That's what we're allowing as opposed to getting rid of. That's the leaven within us. We can either acknowledge it and we can begin to pluck those gray hairs out. I used to have my kids pull my gray hairs out. I don't know. After a while, I got to be, you know, I'm, I'm going to be bald at the end of this. We're going to have to stop. <laughs> okay. We can acknowledge that it's there. And deal with it, or we can choose to ignore it. The man who chooses to ignore it is, descri is described there in James, and he says, listen, he beholds his natural face in that glass, and he walks away, not knowing, not understanding, not acknowledging what manner of man he is, not realizing where his heart lies. Here, the nation of Israel has been believing their own facade, putting this lie out before them, pursuing it for so long that they're believing their own. And, and if they're not believing, they're at least unwilling to acknowledge where they're at. And it says in verse 10, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. And they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. In other words, their pride is what is hindering them. This is reminiscent of John chapter 3, where Jesus deals with Nicodemus. And he says, listen, 
people, th this is condemnation that light came into the world and men love darkness rather than light. They don't come to the light because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. Why? Because they're proud. I don't want anybody to see my gray hairs. I don't want anybody to see the burnt side of me. I don't want anybody to see that stuff. So I'm not, I'm just going to re reject all of it. I'm going to remove God from the equation because if there is no light shining in, nobody can see the burnt side. Nobody can see the gray hairs. I don't have to be confronted with the true nature of who I am and where I stand with God. And we often, and most often, we interpret that and we put that into the context of unbelievers. But this is encountering the same mentality, the same heart in God's people. There are going to be those of us who, at different times in our lives, encounter the Word of God. We're faced with a choice, and we have to either accept and humble ourselves before the Lord and say, God, change me, sanctify me in this area. Or we choose to reject it. We choose to continue to put that facade out there. We continue to be that person who won't, be, won't acknowledge the gray hairs. It applies to believers as well. And it's a result of pride. The next simile that we encounter in Hosea chapter 7, they're compared to a heartless dove, a silly heartless dove, he says in verse 11. Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. When they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. I will bring them down as the fowls of the heaven. I will chastise them as their congregation has heard, has heard excuse me. Verse 13, woe unto them, for they have fled from me, destruction unto them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I have redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. And they have not cried unto me with their heart. They have, when they howl upon their beds, they assemble themselves for the corn and wine, and they rebel against me. He says that they are like these silly, heartless doves. Now that word, Without heart, it simply means without conviction, without any fortitude in their belief. Rather than return to their sender, like, like a homing pigeon, right? He says, they don't return to me. They're, they're, they're sent out and they <laughs> fall away and they don't return to me. They pursue other allegiances. And he references two specifically, he says, Egypt and Assyria. As you go through and you look at the kingdom of Israel and its history in 2 Kings, for you note takers, 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 4, they forge an alliance with Egypt. And in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 19, they form an allegiance with Assyria, which ultimately leads to their downfall, ultimately leads to their bondage as a kingdom. This was the mechanism that God was using. They would pursue all of these other allegiances. They would go to all of these other places rather than to return back to the back to him that redeemed them, back to them whose people, whose God they they wouldn't turn back to God. Wow. They were quick to retreat in the face of adversity. And when they retreated, they went back to the natural instinct. They were back to that facade. Rather than stand firm. There is a joining to the world and its standards. So here is the church of God today. 
the same heartless dove without conviction. When everything gets hard, when all of a sudden there's a pushback about the things that God has said and what his standards may be, the church would retreat and we would seek to form this alliance and be acceptable to the world around us. He says, even though I have bound them in verse 15 and strengthened their arms, yet do they imagine mischief against me. Now, the word bound, it, it doesn't mean to tie up or those things. It means to correct or to instruct. So here is God, and he says, I've corrected them, I've instructed them, and, and I've strengthened their arms. Yet do they imagine mischief against me. In Job chapter 5, Job chapter 5, verse 17. Job 5.17 says, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. In, Pro, excuse me, in Psalm, Psalms 94, Psalm 94, verse 12. Psalm 94.12, Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teaches him out of thy law. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects even as a father the son in whom he delights. So what do we find? Here we have the, the nation of Israel who God has said, listen, I have bound them. I have corrected. I have instructed them. Not only did he give his word to them, not only did he codify it in the Ten Commandments and the Levitical law and all the word of God that they had up to this point. They had the benefit of all of that. Not only that, but they had been instructed in it for generations. And they forsook all of it and they put it aside and they said, we're going to worship these idols. We're going to use, this is where we're going to be. But God in his faithfulness would send his prophets, again, those who would bring this message of you need to turn from the corrupt idolatry, from the adultery that you find yourself in. And they put them to death. Over and over, God says, listen, I have corrected them. I have instructed them. I've given them everything necessary for them to understand where they stand. And they've rejected it. They craft mischief. They imagine mischief against me. And ultimately, the perspective shouldn't have been anything negative. It should have been, we are happy because God is dealing with you. We are blessed because God is correcting us. We are loved, and this is a confirmation of his love towards us, that he wouldn't leave us in this state. That's the correct perspective. All too often, though, we, we tend to ascribe, even and, and probably more so in modern times, this idea that if we are in any way going through hardship, we are somehow in sin, we are somehow fallen from the grace of God. Yet here we're told the blessing, the happiness, and the love expressed to us through his merciful correction. That God is in fact faithful and unwilling that we would stay where we were. He's promised you and I in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that this is the predetermined destiny for believers is to be conformed 
into the image of his son, to be made like Jesus, to be sanctified. And that's inevitably going to encounter something in you and in me that needs to be dealt with. It needs to be removed. It needs to be cut off, as it were, pruned away. And don't interpret that as something negative. Interpret that, as the Bible says, as Scripture has revealed to us, as a blessing, as an expression of God's love, something that we should be happy about. The last simile that we find used and applied to the kingdom of Israel and ultimately to the church, to the people of God, you and I, is that, he says, of a deceitful bow. In verse 16, they return not, they return, but not to the Most High. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword their, for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Now, as you read commentators, what you'll find is that almost all of them ascribe this deceitful bow to being something that shoots inaccurately which I think is a completely wrong interpretation. And I want to explain why. I'm not an expert in ancient uh, bows and those kinds of things, uh, but it doesn't take very much exploration to find that there's something else being discussed here. Not, o- not only that, but within the context, he says that they don't return to the most high. They're deceitful. Now, when we do some historical study, we find that uh, the nation of Israel would have used something very similar to the Assyrians as far as their bow, uh, kind of an Eastern style bow. Right? It's not, not a, not a kind of like a recurve, but to string, and I have this great picture here, if only everything is working. It's so much more clear. I'm going to stumble across this, but right, that the bow itself, when it's strung, comes down like this, and then it comes out to the, uh, to the riser, to the grip, and then comes back and curves down. Right? That, when it's strung, when it's under tension, that's its shape. Now, when it's not under tension, it comes all the way this way, has a big loop this way, down to the riser, it's nearly straight, and then back out, opposite the direction that you're going to string it. So to string it, you have to pull it back against its natural inclination, back against its resting position. Now, Eastern-style bows are notorious for breaking arms when you're stringing them because they return very quickly with all of the force that is stored in that bow as you're pulling it back. That's the deceitful bow. That's the illustration. They return, but they don't return to, to God. They return with this animosity, with this mischief that they're seeking against God. It has nothing to do with shooting inaccurately. We already know they've missed the mark. That's a foregone conclusion in this whole passage. But what they're returning to is their sinfulness, is their idolatry. Here they've received the correction of God. They've, they've heard all of these things. And just like the dove that doesn't return back to the one that sent it, this bow returns back to its natural sinful inclination. It's, it's resting its natural state. That's what's being illustrated. It's the same simile in many respects from a different illustration. The deceitful bow, they return to to sin and not to God. Now, that's all well and good. This is where the nation of Israel is. We made some slight application to you and I. We may encounter the negative examples here at Hosea. But here's the thing. We also find the positive in 
the word of God, the correct action and the correct heart. There's always a frustration of mine, as much as I may have liked Adventures in Odyssey. I mean, I enjoy the stories, I enjoy the interaction, it's fun. But you'd have 25 minutes of the entire program highlighting and illustrating the negative, the sinful inclination of the people, and five minutes explaining what we should have done and the lesson from the Word of God. And it should have been 25 minutes of correction and five minutes of illustration of the wrong. In my opinion, I always had it backwards. Now, here I am. I mean, I'm armchair quarterbacking this entire thing. I've never produced a show like that, never tried to, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about. But here we've spent all this time looking at the negative examples. What is the right response that we should hold? Turn with me to James chapter one. Let's begin here. James chapter one. Here was the nation of Israel, and we're going to spend some time this morning looking at a few of these. Here's the nation, the kingdom of Israel, and they are unwilling to look into the word of God, to look into, uh, to let that have its way in their hearts and respond to it. They're ignoring the gray hairs that they may encounter there. And in verse 25 of James chapter one, it says, but whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. In other words, we look into the word of God, we see the gray hairs, and we choose to deal with it. We humble ourselves to see the nature that we have. We humble ourselves to be accepting of the correction that God may have for us. To repent from it, to turn from where we're at to the true and living God and his way. We would acknowledge, we would see it, we would respond to it rightly, correctly, humbly, abandon our pride, and acknowledge the gray hair, the sinfulness that may be there in us. In Romans chapter 6, if you'll turn there with me, they've yielded themselves to sin in, in, in such ways for so long that they've begun to believe their own lie. They've yielded themselves to it. They've willingly given themselves over to it. But you and I, as believers in Christ, this is what it says to you in verse 4 of Romans chapter 6. Therefore, we are buried with him in baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. And it goes on through the rest of this chapter to describe to you and I what we should be yielding ourselves to. We should be yielding ourselves to the true and living God. We should be yielding ourselves to his corrective hand, to his service, to his glory, to his honor, not our own pursuits. That we would be yielded servants of the Lord. Here we have the kingdom of Israel, and they are stuck. And when they encounter things, they return not, all, not to God, not to, not to him who would reveal them to him, who would pour out his, shed his own blood on their behalf, no, they return to their sinfulness. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, if you'll turn there with me, 2 Corinthians 2. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. It says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ that we would see the world around us through the 
the lens, as it were, through the understanding, through the biblical perspective that God has given us. That we would look at it and understand it the way that God looks at it and understands it. If God says it's wrong, then it is clearly wrong, and we are unmovable in that truth. If God says that it's right, then it is right, and we are unmovable in that truth. And we don't allow any wiggle room. We don't give up any ground in that regard, but we use it as the instrument that it is, as a mechanism that God would convict those by as they are encountered with the light that we would shine into their life. We don't slide over here in the same way that others would compromise. We remain resolute. While this may be a commentary why we may encounter these negative examples here in Hosea, it should not be something that is encountered here within you or with me, within me. I want to go back to verse 2 for just a moment because there's an interesting term here, and I think that it yields itself to you and I some consideration, something that we should be aware of. He says in verse 2, they consider not their own hearts, and I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about that are before my face. Now that word beset them about, I mean, we understand what it means, right? To be beset is to be entangled or something like that. It's, it's encompassed them. It surrounded them. And it was an interesting thought as I was pondering this, this little illustration that God had given us in this single phrase, beset them about, encompassed us. It reminded me of a round pin in which you train a horse. Now, listen, I'm just going to go out on a limb here because I don't know anything about horses, but I read an article the other day, so I'm practically an expert in the round pin. <laughs> okay. But it, it gives us some good illustration. Here is what God has done. We have to let the Word of God have its way in us. Okay, with, with each one of these similes, there's some conviction that may come to mind. There's something that God may be bringing to mind within us. Something where we see ourselves in that little portion of the mirror of the Word of God. We have to be submitted to that. This is where we enter the round pin where God is going to train us. The purpose of the round pin, in that's where you train horses in Minnesota, but it's not, you, you don't exercise your horses, that's specific, you don't exercise your horses there. It's very specific in what it's used for, and you have to use it correctly, you're going to cause all kinds of problems, apparently, per this one article that I read on the internet, so I'm sure it's true. Okay? It's not used for exercise. Right here, here I express my frustration over all of this. We talk about all the wrong things in Adventures of Odyssey. We spend 25 minutes illustrating all of that. Here's the round pin. This is not where God is giving us go around after go around after go around to practice the sin that we're already in. He's training us against that. We're not exercising them. We're not practicing the sinfulness that we're in. That's not what it's designed for. This is where we're going to encounter God in such a way that we have to deal with this. Now, it removes the option for the horse to run away. Now, I'm sure that horses can, I mean, could jump over the fence. I don't know. Okay. I don't know how tall a round pin should be. Saw pictures and they were very tall. I'm like, I don't think a horse could jump over that. But I've seen cows jump over things that I didn't think they could jump over. And horses are far more athletic, I know, because I've seen Ferdinand. Okay. I'm keeping up here. Here we are. We're in the round pin with God. We cannot run away from what God is confronting us with. We have to deal with it. 
And we're going to deal with it in one of two ways. And these are the only two ways that we encounter in scripture. Either we're going to submit ourselves to it. We're going to humble ourselves before the word of the Lord. And it's going to have its way within us. Or we're going to reject it completely. And we're going to continue in that sin. Those are the only two ways that we ever deal with anything that God reveals to you and I. Now, the nation of Israel, this is a commentary on what happens and how God deals with his people over generations who are unwilling to acknowledge their sin, who are going to continue in that round pin round and round and round and do the same thing over and over. But to you and I, it forces us to face the Lord in regard to our sin. It forces us to encounter him in the midst of that. One of the primary uses, one of the primary things that the round pin is used to train a horse for is that you, the person that is doing the training, is the safe place. You don't chase your horse in the round pen. You don't do anything like that. When it, All it's designed to do primarily is to help that tr- horse trust you. So here we are in the round pen. We're confronted with our sin, and all we have, the only option that we have if we're going to deal with what's happening is to trust the Lord is the trust of the Lord. Successful round pin training, the horse will come to you who is doing the training, and they will seek your comfort and peace in the middle of that because they're confused. Their fight or flight is at high alert, and they're trying to get out of there, and they can't, and so they have to come to you. That's exactly what God's doing with you and I. As we are beset, we are entangled, we are in the round pin that God is using to train us. We see the faithfulness of God as we respond well to the training correction and the molding of his merciful hand all of which the nation of israel failed to do they rejected it over and over and over now in proverbs chapter five there's uh, let's look at a few things here from scripture because my weak attempts at understanding how a round pen works probably are less illustrative than the word of god proverbs chapter five verse 21 for the ways of man are before the eyes of the lord and he ponders all his going Now, just understand that in that statement alone, God knows exactly what to do in your heart and in mind. He knows exactly what needs to be corrected. He knows exactly what to do to correct it. He's the perfect human whisperer. But he continues on in verse 22. His own iniquity shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sin. Now, this is the transition from talking about God and his own. understanding of mankind, and we've transitioned to our own self. Our own iniquities are going to take the wicked himself. We're going to be entangled with them, and they shall be holden with the cords of our sin. That's what's encountered. That's what we're encountering. In Hebrews chapter 12, you remember in the first verses there, it says, let us lay aside the sin that this so easily beset us, entangle us, same concept. That here we are in that realm and we've been confronted with, and we're going to put off those things that are entangled in us. He shall die without instruction, and the greatness of his folly shall go astray. If we are unwilling to be trained by God in the middle of all of that, if we are unwilling to trust him to bring about fruit within us. As Jesus would say in John chapter 15, talking about the parable of the the vine and the branches, allow him to cut away those things that are entangling us, then we're going to be stuck in those things. We already read in Romans 6.16, where when we yield ourselves to it, it begins to entangle us. We become slaves to it. We become servient to that sin. Yet here is God in the midst of our entanglement with 
the lust of our flesh, with our inappropriate desires, whatever it may be, our compromise. There he is in the midst of that, teaching us that we can trust him. Teaching us that when we come to him, just as the horse would have to come to the trainer, when we come to him, that's when things get removed. That's when God cuts away those things that are holding on to. When he removes those things that are completely entangling us and making us of little use to him. In Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 to 14. Hebrews 4, 13. He prefaces this by explaining to us that the Word of God is this surgical instrument that cuts between even the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It understands and cuts through our motives. So here as we encounter ourselves in the Word of God, as we find ourselves looking into and seeing the gray that is there, it isn't just something that, that we encounter and we see the, the outward expression of that sin. No, we, we fully see and, and our understanding of the motive that is leading to that sin even, to the heart condition that would yield itself to that. And that's ultimately what God is correcting. Because he's not interested in burnt cakes that look good on the outside and to burn on the backside. He wants the cake that is consistent all the way through. So he says in verse 13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto him, the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Now listen, you're not going to send me into a round pen with a horse. First of all, I'm going to be terrified because I have no idea. Horses scare me. They're big. They're powerful. I had some bad experiences when I was little, and I haven't outgrown them, okay? I'm mad enough to admit it. You're not going to send me in there because I have no understanding about a horse, how they work, what they think about it. I no understanding. I read an article on the internet. What this says to you and I is that God sees directly into our hearts, and he knows every in and out that exists. The thoughts, the motives, the intents, the reasons why, the things that, are, that we are yielded to, those things that, that may be good and those things that may be bad. Not only that, but it goes on and says that we have this high priest that is passed into the heavens. And then the discretion about this high priest leading up to this in this chapter is that he understands. Right? Jesus was in every way tempted as we are tempted, yet without sin. He understands the pull that the world has. He understands the pull to, that we might have to compromise and to escape that inevitable confrontation. To be unpopular, to be the person that would fall under condemnation from family, co-workers, friends, because we're willing to stand firm on the Word of God and be resolute. Yet he didn't yield to those things. He didn't give in to those things. So when we enter the round pen, we're not entering with some novice. We're not going in there with some kid who doesn't have any idea like me. We're going in there with the perfect trainer, with, with the one who knows everything in and outside of us. So the call for you and I, as we see the nation of Israel, we see this slippery slope of compromise. Where it began with the leaders and as it progressed through, it leavened and it corrupted the entire people. 
And we find that that slippery slope is something that we are encountering as a church today. And we, we are grieved by it, and rightly so, because it is something where we are compromising what God has clearly, clearly called us to stand firm in. And I don't know where that hits you or where, that, where you encounter that. And it may be here, it may be in your home, it may be in your own heart, maybe in other churches and just things that we're witnessing from the outside looking in. Wherever it may be and wherever we may stand in respect to that, the call for you and I is the same. And I want to conclude this morning by just looking at four passages of Scripture that give us insight, the same insight, over and over and over, because for you and I as believers, the one thing that we need to understand is that we have to be single-hearted and resolute, steadfast. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, for you and I in the church this morning, what that means for us is that there is this, and, and contextually in Galatians, what's being discussed here are these believers who have left Judaism, and now they're being put back under this yoke of bondage, or Gentile believers who are now coming to faith and being told by these Judaizers, you have to do these certain things to be righteous in addition to Christ. The way this comes about in the church and, and, and in our lives, potentially, is that we have these standards of righteousness that are somewhat different or somehow in addition to the standard of righteousness that God has established, which is by faith in Christ and that alone. And he says, listen, you believers stand fast in the liberty where Christ has made you free. We're no longer, no longer as we read in, in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we're no longer under condemnation. We're no longer bound up and responsible to keep the law to somehow equal righteousness. No, here we are declared righteous by God. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have some outward expression. There shouldn't be some change in our life, that there isn't something that happens within us and a desire to pursue the things of God. If we love him, we're going to obey him, Jesus would say. But what we're talking about, what we're, what we're being liberated from is this obligation. That our righteousness is caught up in something other than Jesus himself. Now, the world would tell you and I that if we're going to be righteous, if we're going to be holy, if we're, we're, we're going to have to bear the yoke of compromise. We're going to have to call these things that God calls sin. We're going to have to call them good. We're going to have to be tolerant of them. We're going to have to accept them. We can't call anybody to account for it, whatever it may be. And the church in many respects has embraced that idea. Within the church, it means that we're going to stand fast in what God has said and that alone. That we've been declared righteous and we stand before him justified as if we've never sinned and that by his own declaration. And that my failure or my success in my walk with the Lord doesn't bring about a loss or a gain, so to speak, in my right standing with God. Now, there's going to be consequences. We talked about this this morning in Sunday school. Whatever we sow, we're going to reap. 
if we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap destruction. There'll be heartache. There'll be hardship. There'll be destruction as a result of that. Even in this life, we're spared the eternal consequence of our sin. But if I steal, the illustration I gave this morning, if I steal a car and I drive little old ladies around and I still stole the car and I should expect justice as a result, thou shalt not steal. No caveats, period. And if I sow to the spirit, then I'm going to reap good things. I'm going to reap things in the next life. There's reward associated with that. But what it doesn't mean equal and what it doesn't change is my right standing with God. And the world and the church at large today would tell us that it does. So we need to stand firm in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and not be entangled again with this yoke of bondage. 1 Corinthians 16, turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 16. Say 1 Corinthians 16. No, it is. It's 1 Corinthians 16. Beginning in verse 13 and 14, he says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit ye like men, be strong. Let all your things be done with charity. We have here this call to watch. In other words, we're paying attention to what's going on around us. We're seeing those things within us. We're seeing those things outside of us. We're seeing those things. We're observant of what God is doing. We're observant of what the world is doing, where it stands in relation to him. And it says, stand fast in the faith. Don't slide over here as the world slides over here. Don't compromise in these areas as the world begins to compromise. But stand fast in the faith and be unwavering in the doctrines that we hold because God has revealed them to us in his word. Stand fast in the faith. He says, quit ye like men, be strong. Now, this is not a derogatory term. I mean, Paul isn't saying that women aren't strong, but here it is, right? <laughs> what he's saying is, as a soldier, so to speak, right, you're going to conduct yourself as a man, as somebody who is resolute and strong, unwavering, brave, and strong, and all, those, all of those characteristics that we associate with those soldiers. Because this is actually a quote from the Old Testament. And you know who first uttered it? A Philistine general. Quit you be a man. Be a man. The thing that occurs to me is I had a conversation earlier this week, and one of the things that occurred to me in that conversation is as we quit ourselves like men. First and foremost, it says to you and I, men, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that the head of man is Christ. If I'm going to behave myself like a man, then I'm going to be first and foremost submitted to Jesus Christ. And women, that's good advice for you too. First and foremost, if you want to behave yourself like a man, be submitted first to Christ. <laughs> Quit yourself like men. We conduct ourselves with the fortitude that we should have. Be strong. Let all your things all your things, everything that we do, let all your things be done with charity. Jesus would say about charity in regard to love, which is the same synonymous word, that upon these two, love God first and foremost and love your neighbor as yourself, hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, everything that God has given us and repeated to us and now expounded for us, we can summarize it all in those two things, love. He would say in Romans 13, owe no man anything but a debt of love. 
We have the obligation before God to conduct ourselves into the world around us in love. And here's the thing that we need to understand, that it is unloving for you and I to condone those things that are, that are sinful. It is unloving for us to not shine the light into the world that God has lit us to shine. Matthew chapter 5. How much would we have to despise someone to not tell them the truth that this is your natural estate and destination? And by the way, this is what God has done in Jesus Christ to save you from it. And when we're willing to condone sinfulness, when we're unwilling to stand firm and be fast in the faith, to submit ourselves, to quit ourselves like men, it's exactly what we're doing. We're not showing love. Galatians chapter 6, if you'll go back there with me, Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Don't grow weary in well-doing. If I'm honest, I've probably in the last several months grown weary of well-doing. But this is what God tells us. Don't grow weary. Right, we're going to stand fast in the faith. We're going to submit ourselves first and foremost to Christ. We're going to honor him in all that we do. Everything that we do is going to be done in charity. We are not going to grow weary in well-doing. It means that we don't get a day off from serving the Lord. It means that we don't get a day off from picking up our cross and following him. Jesus said that's what we do on a daily basis. There are no day off, days off in our walk with the Lord. Either we walk with him or we don't. We're not going to be weary in well-doing. He says, we're in due season, we shall reap if we faint not. Now, when a farmer plants his seeds, when he sows them into the ground, he doesn't reap it the next day. Well, there's investment in that, isn't there? Maybe there's watering. Maybe there's dealing with weeds and those things that may be growing up in the midst of it. Maybe there's all kinds of things that have to be done to bring that to harvest. But we don't grow weary and do it. If we give up and we throw our hands up and we stop doing the things that are necessary, we stop watering the crop, we're not going to reap anything. Whether it's in this life or the next life, we don't reap anything. So here we are. As those lights, we are not weary and well-doing. We continue in them as the, for God's glory and for his witness. We continue in, in doing the things that we ought to do so that we might reap what has been sown. And he says, as you have therefore opportunity, this is the outlet. This is what he's saying. As we have opportunity, therefore, let us do good unto all men. The outward expression of what he is just talking about and not growing weary and well-doing is to take the opportunities to do good to all men, to speak truth, to express love, not only in sharing the truth, but in meeting physical needs and in helping out. If there's a practical outlet for our faith in the expression of God's love, there's a very practical outlet when Jesus Christ took on flesh and went to the cross so that God might show his love to you and I. 
So we capitalize on every opportunity that's before us. Now I'm gonna tell you this, and just between you and I, because this is secret, right? Sometimes it's inconvenient to take every opportunity. Sometimes we have other things. Sometimes we have, and I'll just tell you that the way that I try to address that in my life, and I'm not by any means an expert. And I will tell you that if I am extremely honest, this is probably an area that I have a lot of growth to, have, to, to do. This is, where, this is somewhere that I fall on my face regularly. Not taking the opportunity. But one of the ways that I've conceived of doing this is being organized in my life such that I am available. So that I can. If I schedule my time so that I have, I'm here at this time and I respect that person's time enough that I'm not late so that we're not rushed in whatever interactions we're having, I might at the very end of that have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone. But if I'm negligent in everything else, if I'm not doing those things that I know I should be doing for the glory of the Lord, then when I get there and everything falls to pieces, then there's no time for that later. I've wasted their time and I've wasted my time. We are going to capitalize. We're going to, therefore, as we have opportunity, and there are plenty of them, do good unto all men, especially them who are of the household of faith. That the primary outlet of this expression of concern and love would be within the church, first and foremost, and secondly, outside the church. One more here, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I hope what we realize as we go through and we look at these, it's not a condemnation, but it's actionable. It's things that we can move forward on, things that we can progress in, things that we can embrace as the small things, as it were, right? If we're faithful in the small things, then we'll be entrusted with greater things. But this is a actionable ways that we can express our obedience and love to God. Not a list of do's and don'ts, not a list, but, but just ways that we can operate in accordance with his word, as he's told us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth not walk, not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind. And I'm just going to sum that up by saying that for you and I as believers, there should be some difference in the way that we operate, in the way that we interpret the world around us, because we have a different foundation. We're not going to walk as the unbelieving as the Gentiles around us walk. Verse 18, having the, understand, they're having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all in cleanness with greediness. So here they are. They're past all feeling. We, we, we've overcome our conscience. We've soothed it to the extent, we're, just like Israel, we're beginning to believe our own lies. The facade that we put out there, all of these things that we're doing, we look at and we're only willing to look at the good side of the cake. We don't acknowledge the gray hairs. We're just going to ignore those completely. We've put all that aside. Verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ. You have not so learned Christ. This isn't what we observe in Jesus' earthly ministry and his interaction with those that are around him and his interaction with God the Father. It's not what we should be exhibiting either. 
We have not so learned Christ. We have not so learned that we can give ourselves over, that we can be ignorant of those things that he has revealed in us and to us. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught of him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Here's what we learn in Jesus Christ. That this old stony heart, this heart that is hard and separated from him is removed. He gives us a new heart that is soft and receptive to those things that he has for us. That we are new creatures in Christ. That we are brand new, unsullied as it were, by the corruption of our sin nature. No longer subject to it, as we would discover in Romans chapter 6. But now we have the opportunity. We are servants of God. And just as Jesus Christ, who in, in one of the grandest ex, uh, expressions of his servitude, took on flesh for the purpose of dying, would tell you and I that we should exhibit the same characteristics. That if we're going to serve him, we're going to put others first. So we're renewed in the spirit of our mind. In other words, it's completely changed. We think about things differently. And then we put on the new man. We've taken off this old man with his corrupt nature, all of his flaws and weaknesses and bad tendencies. And how do we know that? Because we've encountered it in the word. We've seen the gray hairs. We're going to put on the new man. And this new man, he doesn't have gray hairs. They're nice. I mean, you got thick hair. If you want a long beard, it's a long beard. If you don't want a beard, no beard. Right? I mean, just, I'm just saying, imagine this new man in contradiction to the old man and that's nature. They're incomparable. Here we have the new man. We put on the new man. Which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Not something conjured up, not something faked. Not something earned or merited, but by declaration of God and that alone. Wherefore, he continues on, and he gives us a list of descriptions. These are the things that we ought to do as a result. It should be characteristics of us who are in the new man. He talks about being angry and not sinning. We talked about that a little bit this morning in Sunday school. He talks about putting away lying and speaking truth with his neighbor. He says, not giving place or not, don't, don't leave any room for the devil to creep in. In other words, there's no room for compromise for you and I as believers. In the new man, we're going to stand firm and resolute. But the nation of Israel, and here they are, as this negative example of what is happening, that God uses these similes to describe their heart condition. But for you and I as believers, those who have trusted in Christ, who are in the new man, this new man state, we have these other descriptions of us, these other attributes that should be existent within us. These other things that we should be doing, the other, this whole other mechanism and way of living that is foreign to the world around us, but should be native to you and I. That's not easy. We're not going to do it perfectly. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be engaged about the business of our Lord in honor 
in pursuit of his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word this morning. We praise you for the training that we receive at your hand. Lord, that you have given us purposes and things that we ought to walk in. That you have, Lord, before us put opportunities where we might speak and be the light that shines into the darkness in the lives of others. That we might be those who would uh, call to account those within the body of Christ, Lord, and even be those who would support and bear those burdens alongside of others. We praise you and thank you for the honor and the, the privilege, Lord, of being your children, of being your representatives, your witnesses here on this earth. And I pray, Lord, that we would not be known as anyone like the nation of Israel, the, this kingdom that has rejected you, that is, uh, that is rejected and even unwilling to acknowledge the true nature and the state of where they are. But Lord, by your grace, we would be those who are sensitive and receptive to your corrective hand. We thank you for it. We thank you for the expression of love that that is in our lives. Lord, and I pray that by your grace, it would yield within each one of us the peaceable fruit of righteousness. We thank you, Lord, as we have opportunity to fellowship now, as we commit this time into your hands, Lord, we pray that you would be honored. We pray, Lord, that it would be for your glory, for the strengthening of the church and the witness that we may have together and as individuals. We commit it into your hands now, in Jesus' name, amen.